Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word, which is eternal. We thank you for the word that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This morning, let us be filled and transformed by your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those who are visiting, we are continuing in our series on the seven letters to the seven churches from the book of Revelation. And this morning, we are on Pergamum. So I have a uh, question to ask you here to get started. Is it okay to flirt with someone other than your wife or husband? No hands go up? I mean, flirting, harmless, is it? Sure, it's okay. <laughs> Janine's going for it just because. All right. But most of us keep our hands down because we know instinctively that it is dangerous that you are flirting with fire. That flirting, even if it seems harmless with someone other than your husband or wife, can lead to thoughts, feelings, and ultimately actions that can destroy your marriage, that can lead to divorce. Now, the same thing comes in our marriage to Christ Jesus. When we start to flirt with false teachings, even as innocuous as they might be, they can often lead to thoughts, feelings, and actions, false beliefs that can destroy our relationship with Christ Jesus, both individually and as a church body. So the question this morning for us to really start off with is, are you maintaining the purity of your faith in Christ Jesus and avoiding the temptation of non-biblical teaching? That's the question I want you to ponder as we go through our lesson today from the church in Pergamum. So let us go to the image of Christ. And To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now the image that we have of Christ Jesus here for Pergamum is very different than the one that we had from Smyrna. Remember Smyrna was under severe persecution? So rather than this, he said the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. There was already that hope found in the image, the introduction that he had in the letter. But here it's very different. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In the Greek, it's much more emphatic. A literal reading of the Greek would be this. The one who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. So very emphatic. It says Jesus is the one who has the sword, but it is not a simple sword. It is one that is very sharp and cuts cuts both ways. You see, in the Roman period, it was the one who had the sword who had the full authority over life and death. But here it is not the Roman proconsul or the governor or even a soldier who has a sword. It is Christ Jesus who has the sword. So that he has the sword speaks to the authority, the omniscience, and the finality of his judgment. And by the way, for those who are visiting today, there are sermon notes in your bulletin if you want to use those to follow along. So that Jesus has the sword speaks to the authority, the omniscience, and the finality of his judgment. We should always keep in mind the words 
from Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division and soul of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is no hiding from Christ Jesus, not even the little bit. So now, with that in mind, let's take a look and see what Jesus sees in this church in Pergamum. First, we start with the good. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you do not deny my faith even and you do not, do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in five of the letters, Jesus starts off with, I know your works. With Smyrna, he basically says, I know your situation. But here, this is the only church, he says, I know where you live. Now, I'm sure that there are places, there are cities suburbs, parts of a city that you know that are dangerous. And if you said you were from there, or if you knew somebody was from there, you would know how dangerous a place that is. We would call them hell holes. People would say that this is a hell hole. And I use that language specifically because here Jesus says it is Satan's throne. So if you want a hell hole, Satan's throne would be it. Now, as I have done with the other cities, I'm going to give you a little bit of information, some background on the city, so you get a little more context. Pergamum. So this is a, an, uh, a picture of what Pergamum looks like today. It is where the city was. It's all ruins now, but you can see how big of a city it was and how vast. It's about 65 miles north of Smyrna and about 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. It was located on the elevation of about 1,000 feet, and it served as a citadel to the countryside. In fact, the name Pergamum, in one part of the root, means citadel or tower. And by the way, the other part means marriage, which is why I started off with the example of, is it okay to flirt with someone other than your spouse? So here we have an example of marriage. Now, let me show you what Pergamum looked like, an artist's rendition, in its heyday. You can see it was a well, well-built town. There are a couple things I want to point out here. How many temples it had. It had a temple of Dionysus, a temple of Athena, the temple of the ruler cult, or for the emperor, and the altar of Zeus. So Zeus, by the way, was called Zeus Soter, which means Zeus' savior. They had another god there, Asclepius Soter, who was a god uh, of healing, but he was also considered a, a savior. So this is what Jesus calls the Satan's throne, or the throne of Satan. Now, it also was a highly religious center, as you can see from all these different temples. And included in this religious center, as we've talked about with the other two churches, was emperor worship. Emperor worship was a keystone here in Pergamum. They excelled 
above the other cities that we've talked about so forth in emperor worship. So that Jesus calls this Satan's throne is no coincidence because this is a place where evil is called good and good is called evil. If you were a Christian in Pergamum, just like Smyrna that we talked about, it was a pagan society, and to refuse invites to go to pagan festivals or to go to certain activities, and if you rejected that, you were outcast, you were shunned. You would lose business if you had a business within the city. People would say, you are not fit to be alive here in this city if you did not bow down, if you did not worship, if you did not go with what the world said. But I like it what one commentator had to say regarding this. He said, for faithful believers, there is no one higher than their Lord. No human law that takes precedence over God's law and no teaching that supplants the gospel. There's a lot of truth in this. I mean, you let that one soak in for a little bit. Would you be able to say this? For faithful believers, there is no one higher than their Lord, than your Lord. There is no human law that takes precedence over God's law and no teaching that supplants the gospel. Would you stand for that? Just as we sang in the song, would you stand steadfast for that? You see, just as Polycarp was martyred in Smyrna, Jesus also refers to a specific man here, Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas at all. Very, very little. Tradition says that the Apostle John made him the bishop of Pergamum at one time and that he was martyred under one of the emperors, and at least as the tradition goes, he was martyred by being placed and burned in a bull-shaped altar. What we do know is that Jesus called him out, that he was a faithful witness. And this is high praise, because who is Jesus? One of Jesus' titles is is the faith of the true witness. He is the true witness. And so that he calls Antipas a faithful witness is high praise indeed. So a question this morning for you is, would Jesus say that of you? Would Jesus call you a faithful witness? So this is what Jesus saw. He saw that there had been faithful witness in Pergamum, but he had much to say about things that were going on in the church. So let's see what he sees that was bad. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Laetans, Nicolaitans. So when Jesus says, I have a few things against you, we shouldn't try to minimize that. Look, when your parents said, we need to talk about a couple things, you didn't minimize that, did you? You knew that it was important, so that it was just a few does not equate to less important. It's actually very important. 
and he calls out the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. I have trouble with that name. Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now you find the count of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a prophet or a soothsayer who was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites. And he was hired to put a curse on Israel so that the Moabites could overcome Israel because Balak was worried about the strength of the Israelites. So he sent some emissaries to go and hire Balaam to go and put a curse on the Israelites. Now, Balaam doesn't put a curse on the Israelites because of what the Lord God said to him. But the problem was he was still a prophet for hire, right? He was a prophet for hire and would have willingly done that had he not gotten a word from the Lord. So rather than curse the uh, Israelites, he ends up blessing them. Not only that, he advised the king, Balak, to bring about Israel's downfall by inviting them to worship the Moabite gods, which is a direct refutation of the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. He also encouraged them to have intermarriage with the Israelites. So the Moabites and the Israelites to intermarry, to mix those things together, and also for sexual relationships between the Israelites and the Moabites according to their pagan practices. If you want to put it all together, it is this. In Jewish thought, Balaam was the symbol of all that led men to obscene conduct and the forsaking of God. This was how strong they thought about Balaam. He was a symbol of all that led men to obscene conduct and forsaking of God. So that Jesus mentions that they are flirting, so to speak, with the teachings of Balaam is a huge, huge rebuke. Now, he also mentions the Nicolaitans, and we don't really have much information about them. So I can't really go into much depth about them. But that he's mentioned in the same breath as Balaam would say that there's idol worship and that there is sexual immorality. So that's what we can at least conjecture about them. So Pergamum and the early church and the church today, this very day, is being threatened by a combination of idolatry and immorality. When you take a look at the New Testament, you find warning after warning against false teachers, false beliefs, idolatry, and sexual immorality. That we find so many warnings about it really points to the gravity of the situation. Peter wrote this. I would encourage you to read 2 Peter, especially all of chapter 2. I'm going to read just part of it. I put on the screen just one of the verses, but I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then 13 through 16. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, The way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. 
They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. There's a very harsh, harsh words about false teaching, false beliefs, false practices. I'd love to say that that's not happening today at all. But that's far, far from the truth. As a matter of fact, you only need to look at our newspaper. The ads in the religion section last week were pretty interesting. There was one ad. It says, experience the sound of soul. It's by this group called Ekankar. Ekankar was founded in 1967 by Paul Twitchell. It's a combination of old age Gnosticism, how you can find God by yourself and your own spiritual experiences. It's a combination of new age, which is actually just the old age revisited and repackaged. It is also a combination of Hinduism, and I would probably put in some science fiction in there as well, given the history that I've read about it. Yet, it's going to sound good, and they're going to use words that will entice people in. I also found it really interesting. There was an ad in the newspaper that, for the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've uh, seen it, that uh, the Methodist church in town and the ELCA church in town are combining worship services. Now, historically, those two denominations shouldn't go together. So you have to start to wonder, well, why are they combining worship services? Well, if you do even just a little bit of research, it becomes clear pretty fast. One of the things that the Methodist Church has, especially if they're outdoors, and I've seen their tables at the art fair, and they have a big poster, big sign on their table that says, praise well with others. And that's kind of how they promote the church in a way, that we pray well with others. Well, when you take a look at some of the symbols on the sign, it is Buddhism, Judaism, Christian, Sikhism, Hindu, Muslim, and the last one, by the way, I, I, I have no idea what that symbol is. I'll try to find it. Um, all of those, by the way, reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, if you even spend a little bit more time and dig further, you find that they're affiliated with the Arizona Interfaith Movement. And there are... 18 different uh, groups that they list on here, uh, some of which you probably have never have heard. But there's also one, uh, this last one over here, it says the Family Federation. And I thought, what's the, it says Family Federation for World Unification. So I clicked on that, I thought, well, what's that? Well, it turns out it's associated with the Unification Church. You would know that church as the Moonies. Do you remember that? back in the 70s, knowing as the Moonies. Well, what did Reverend Moon declare himself to be in 2004? He said he is the savior of humanity. So what you're finding with all of this is if you're with all of these people, it is something called religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is the belief in two or more religious worldviews as being equally valid 
or acceptable. This is more than tolerance. This is more than just getting along and being friendly with one another. This says we accept other religions as being equally valid, equally true. In essence, all roads lead to God, even though those that deny Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's just kind of what they teach. Well, what about the ELCA? Uh, They had an ELCA church-wide assembly in August of 2019, just a couple weeks ago. And one of their motions was this. It said, we must be careful about claiming to know God's judgments regarding another religion. In essence, we can't say anything about other faiths that deny Jesus Christ, that say he is the only way. This is the ELCA. This is the resolution. Now, there was one brave soul. And by the way, this is on YouTube. I watched a video. It was really interesting, sad, but interesting. There was one brave soul who stood up and said, we actually can know what God says about other religions. And he said, the Bible says Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He could have added, he didn't, but he could have added that if you deny Jesus before men, Jesus will deny you before the Father. He didn't have to do that, but he could have. Now, his statement, by the way, oh, upset people greatly. They were offended that he said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And so his amendment to that resolution was soundly defeated by 94%. So they too have religious pluralism, or it's called universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. So it's no mistake here that the Methodist and the ELCA church would go together because this is what they teach and this is what they believe. This is the teaching of Balaam. This is the mixing of various religious beliefs. This goes directly back to what Jesus said to the church in Pergamum. Now, he also talked about sexual immorality. Now, there's a lot of sexual immorality that goes with uh, religious pluralism. It kind of follows how it goes. Uh, But in this case, it's an old-fashioned word that we would talk about, that the word is actually fornication. We don't use that word too much anymore, fornication. What that means is sex outside of marriage. So a man having sex with a woman outside of marriage, woman having sex with a man outside of marriage includes prostitution and so forth, which again goes back to Balaam. Now, I want to tell you how far we have come as a culture regarding this. Just, the, just having sex outside of marriage, how we think it's a blasé thing nowadays. There is a television show that I've never watched, but I know of. It's called The Bachelorette. Bachelorette. Having a little trouble with my words this morning. I don't know if you've ever watched that. I wouldn't recommend it, those reality TV shows. But there was a kerfuffle this past spring when one of the male contestants asked the bachelorette um, that 
he basically said, look, if you're going to sleep with these other guys, I don't want to be with you. This upset her greatly. And by the way, I can't speak to his character. As a matter of fact, anybody who goes on a reality show like that, I think their character is suspect in the beginning. Because that's what they do. It's they, they just want to see, well, when is somebody going to hook up with somebody else? Well, anyway, he said, I don't want you to have sex with the other contestants on the show. This upset her. And she said, I've already done it twice. And this, then, is what she said. I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. Now, do we sin daily? You bet. Does Jesus still love us? You bet. Are we to repent? Indeed. We are never given the commandment, do whatever. This is the state of our culture. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, come on. This goes on all the time. Are you so narrow-focused? Are you so intolerant? Can't you open up a little bit? Can't you just go ahead, go with the flow, go with what the world says? I mean, after all, love is love, right? And we just got to follow our heart. Does a little flirting with other faiths and beliefs really matter? And the answer is yes. It matters because Jesus says it matters. And he says we are to repent. We are to repent. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. By the way, in the Greek, it would be repent in all capital letters with an exclamation point on it. It is a command, repent. It's not a suggestion. Jesus says, Pergamum, you need, you must repent of your ways. Jesus said that he hated the Nicolaitans in, a, in the letter to the Ephesians. He still hates them here. We must love what Jesus loves and be intolerant of what Jesus is intolerant of what Jesus hates. This call to repentance is this. I like how one person put it. Christians are called to be watchful, to enforce spiritual discipline, and to expel false teachers from their midst. That's what he's calling the church to do in Pergamum, to be watchful, to enforce spiritual discipline and expel false teachers from their midst. This is something that we don't do much as a church anymore. We kind of just want to go with the flow. But that's flirting, and we can't do that. Those who are serving Satan are bent on destroying the church and meet the sword of the warrior and her victorious Lord. So that's the bad news, right? Well, what's the promise in all of this? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. As to the white stone, I really can't tell you what that means. It's fairly hidden from our meaning, from our understanding. 
I could say that it symbolizes purity, that, that there's a new name on it, would indicate maybe perhaps a new life in Christ, but that's about as far as I can go with the stone. However, there's much to be said about the manna, the hidden manna. The hidden manna refers, I believe, to what God told Moses. He told Moses to put some of that manna in a jar, and then he put the jar in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was there as a reminder that God had fed the Israelites throughout their stay in the desert for 40 years. And although the manna would always rot with the Israelites, if they kept it, what was kept in the jar never perished. So it is the bread of life that came down from heaven for the Israelites in the desert. But who is the bread of life? It is Christ Jesus. From our gospel reading, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the gospel promise that from Christ Jesus, the manna that was hidden is now made manifest for everyone who has belief in him. And everyone who partakes in faith of Christ Jesus shall never die. This is the gospel promise for those who maintain their faith, their fidelity in Christ Jesus until the very end. And that's a glorious promise that he gives to each one of us. So the questions this morning for you, would Jesus call you a faithful witness? And what goes with that is, will you keep only biblical teaching and avoid even flirting with false teaching and doctrine? And the second question is, do you affirm that there is no one equal or higher than God? No one, no human law that takes precedence over God's law and no teaching which adds to or supplants, that should be takes away or supplants from the gospel. The promise is Jesus, who is the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. We give you thanks and praise that through him we have life and life everlasting. We know that we are weak by ourselves, and we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us and strengthen us so that we may stand fast in the faith and be faithful witness until the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com.